are back, back on the Letterman Jacket podcast, back after Oklahoma's 31 to 29 win over UCF and back with the one and only Todd Lizenby on the 17th episode of the Letterman Jacket. Todd, current Sooners wearing number 17, a couple of freshmen, wide receiver Jacquez Petaway, saw him Saturday, Taylor Heim, another one, I know you've seen him play before, 1917, first year they handed out the Pulitzer Prize. Still waiting on ours here at Sellout Crowd. It's going to come one of these days. We're only two months in. How you doing? I'm great. They've got the address, selloutcrowd.com, if they want to give us our Pulitzer Prize. Uh, I'm really good. When I think 17, Shohei Otani, Devontae Adams, former great Packer wide receiver, now just an average wide receiver in the NFL. And then also the great John Havlicek. Havlicek stole the ball, number 17, famous Boston Celtics. Hondo. Well, it's a little Celtics connection we got. It's a nice thing, like when we can dive into history like that. We're going to talk OU-UCF, a tight one for the Sooners. We're going to talk how concerned you should be if you are an OU fan or if you just should just be thrilled that you're 7 or no. And we're going to get to the kicking game woes and, and Zach Schmidt. But before we jump in, of course, got to talk about our sponsors, Rose Hill Builders, the National Cowboy and Western Heritage Museum, Oklahoma Ford Dealers, Our Blood Institute, Bob Moore Auto Group, and of course, our friends at Fire Lake Arena. ZZ Top, still coming through Shawnee, October 28th. Todd, the beard is getting there. It is looking good. And of course, Fire Lake Golf. I know you were out on the links yesterday. You weren't in Shawnee. They've still got great rates, twilight rounds, all that as the weather cools down. Todd, tell us uh, about your 18 holes yesterday. 86, no big deal. 86, uh, 42, 44, 86. Honestly, Probably good I wasn't out in Shawnee. There's a lot of water on that course because I played with one golf ball yesterday, Eli, which is, you know, that's a big win, especially when it's a Pro V1. That's huge. Again, I've, I'm impressed you made it to work today. I would have taken the day off if, if I'd shot an 86. Well, don't tell anybody, but I'm going to be in New York City later this week. So I think we're going to hear all about it and we're going to talk about it. We'll, we'll get the, the post, post game on that when, you, when you're back from New York. I'm going to have a lot of questions. Questions, there are many from Oklahoma's Week 8 win over UCF. They went in as, as two-and-a-half touchdown favorites. I think, you know, I, I might have been in this group of people who thought this could have been the easiest game left on on Oklahoma's regular season schedule, just how uh, they were playing and how UCF has struggled against, you know, the likes of Baylor and, and Kansas and whatnot. But they came to Norman with John Reese Pumley back under center and gave the Sooners a game. Some of that had to do with the way OU played. The offense was stuck in the mud for the first 45 minutes. Uh, UCF did UCF things in terms of trick plays and deception and, and breaking off big gains uh, against the Sooners. But ultimately, OU woke up. The run game woke up. And uh, Kendall Dolby's stop was enough on the two-point conversion there at the end. To keep the Sooners 7-0, it wasn't pretty. But here they are. Everything's still in front of them. Where does this begin for you? Where, where does the conversation around OU-UCF start? Well, first of all, I, I know this was mentioned. I was actually listening to the radio broadcast while I was kind of watching on my phone as we were headed to Tahlequah for UCO's uh, big President's Cup win this weekend. Uh, but OU's got a pretty darn good history when it comes to two-point conversion stops at home in big key moments here recently. So just add that one to the list on Saturday. Look, the, if we want to compare this team to the 2000 team, and a lot of people are, they still got a zero in the loss column, which is the most obvious comparison to 2000. 
But remember in 2000, that team now was later in the year, but they struggled with Texas Tech, a Texas Tech team that was not very good. They beat them 27-13. They nearly got beat in Bedlam against a 3-8 and Oklahoma State team, had to win 12-7. I think it was Derek Strait that knocked down the pass to Alonzo Mays in the end zone. So for – there he goes. They're so there. for Oklahoma, it's uh, it's, you know – if you want to compare them to the 2000 team, I think this is one of those type of games that you're just going to look back and say, as a Sooner fan, we're glad we won it. I think, you know, one thing kind of bigger picture that, that is just so striking, but it's not surprising, is just how fast the tides can change for somebody like, say, Jeff Levy. Um, this was a game where, you know, we were coming off of Texas, where it got buried in the, the game-winning drive against Texas, but the offense for Oklahoma struggled in the second half against Texas, too. You come in riding that high, and by the third quarter, Oklahoma's offense and in turn Jeff Levy up in the press box are getting booed, right? Because this offense just wasn't moving at all. Uh, They did not look like the offense that we'd seen against Texas for much of that game. Uh, And a big part of that, we've hit on it plenty, the run game. They really, really, really struggled early. And it wasn't until Gavin Sawchuk and Marcus Major got it going, the offensive line, I I think there was some wear down for UCF. They got it going late. But in the early quarters, no Tawi Walker out with an, quote, in-house suspension is how Brent Venables put it. Marcus Major dealing with a shoulder issue. He still played, still led the Sooners in, in rushing, but they were not fully equipped in the run game. And no, it showed and, and hurt them more than any other game this season. Um, and, and, then, and then it picked up. And then Marcus Major and, and Gavin Sawchuk were, had played a big part in the first scoring drive, Drake Scoops, uh, Stoops. Go ahead, touchdown. And then it was Gavin Sawchuk's 30-yard run that, that gave them ultimately the decisive touchdown. But here we are, seven games into this. Uh, they are nowhere closer to having the run game figured out. Uh, they had their worst kind of availability at the running back position this past week. And we go to Kansas still wondering, can this team run the ball? And more importantly, when's it really going to bite them? Well, I mean, first of all, we, we talked about this preseason. Tolly Walker had such an amazing opportunity and it feels like a terrible time to get some sort of in-house suspension whatever it's for right uh feels like a really bad time for that to happen but I think the run game issues are I think they're a little bit deeper Eli than just running back I think a lot of it is offensive line um you know it probably hasn't been talked about enough but Austin Stogner is not the blocker that Braden Willis was and I think that shows up in the run game quite a bit shows up in the pass game every now and again as well when Stogner's left in to block or to chip an end or something like that. So I think both those things um, between, you know, injuries, a little bit of inconsistency offensive line, a tight end that's not near as good as last year, and then you throw in the running back carousel, it's it's led to the Sooners being in a spot that's not great right now. I mean, you're going to have to run the ball, especially on the road to win games. And I think Oklahoma's got to uh, got to get it figured out before this weekend, or they could be in trouble in Lawrence, honestly. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the offensive line here. Well, I'll say this. Austin Stogner, maybe some critiques in, in the blocking and passing game. OU fans should be thrilled that Austin Stogner was there on that onside kick to make that recovery. He saved their bacon. No um, doubt. But you, you're right about the offensive line, and, and that was probably, I, I don't know, you know, on the whole, I, I think they stepped up late. But if you look at the numbers, the, the most o- Oklahoma's offensive line has struggled this year was against UCF. I mean, you, you had Caden Green filling in at, at left guard, who 
I think he's kind of locked that spot down. He played all 79 snaps, but on the right side, no McCabe Matoyer, who I, I know OU fans, <clears throat> some um, like to point to him as a weakness on this line. Fact is, he's played like 43 straight college football games, and he's been a model of consistency for this team. You take him out, you put in Caleb Schaefer and Savion Bird, who both had good moments Saturday and some tough ones. The lack of continuity on the offensive line showed, and it showed in the fact that Dylan Gabriel was sacked more and pressured more than in any game this season. It showed in the run game for sure until they kind of figured it out. Uh, players and coaches alike, even Gus Malzahn agreed at the end of that game that OU had sort of worn them down, UCF, and it showed in the fourth quarter. But waiting to wear a team down is is not going to be the recipe here for Oklahoma. And in fact is, they're not going to get many more games where they can play a team where physically they'll wear them down. They're going to have to get a push. They're going to have to find some consistent running. Same conversation we've had all year, um, but this was the week it nearly cost them. You know, I mentioned that there's comparisons between this team and 2000, and that 2000 team did struggle in a couple of close games. That was also in the BCS era, where one versus two played, and it was a one-game scenario. Now you've got to win a semifinal game and then a championship game. Starting next year, you've got to win three, maybe four games to win a national championship over really, really good teams. And if you go back and look since the uh, playoffs started, a lot of championship teams don't have games like Oklahoma just had. So I think it's a little bit of a reminder that Oklahoma is maybe not quite there yet. But the fact that they won that game, Eli, shows a lot of <clears throat> improvement from last year. And quite frankly, I think given how they played through seven games, if we just take last year's defense, they're four and three. That's, mm -hmm. that's not even taking into account some of the you know, offensive issues that this team had last year as well. You're exactly right. The defense got beat a couple times. You know, Woody Washington was the, the glaring error. Uh, he, he bit on that read option fake that ended in uh, Javon Baker's 86-yard touchdown. We'll talk taunting in a little bit. Um, you know, the, that game did seem to turn a little bit. They almost they were on their way to another goal line stand, and you felt that energy at Owen Field, and then Jaron Canick got hit with a taunting penalty. So there, there was someone defining that gave UCF a fresh set of downs at the goal line. It gave them a, an easy touchdown, on the, I think, on the next play. And that, to me, is where the momentum of that game completely shifted. So on the whole, a fine day for the defense. I think the pass rush looked, looked good again, and that's encouraging. Ethan Downs really is seeming to hit a stride. But you talk about you know very good and championship good. Those two plays, Woody Washington getting beat and, and, uh, and earlier in the game, the mechanic taunt. You talk about experience and, and doing things that championships teams do. I doubt you'll see Jaron Kanick, uh make that same mistake again when Brent Venables talks about having a lot of yelling to do this week. It's a long list, but I'm sure that's on there. But you, you put it right, and it kind of takes us into the next subject we want to hit on. Yes, it was close. Yes, these were not. this was not a day for style points with, with the playoff rankings now a week out. However, Oklahoma's here. They're 7-0. They go to Kansas unbeaten. Everything's still in front of them. And Brett Venable said after this game, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the quote now, there's not a team I've been a part of, a championship team, dot, 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 you know, really good teams. You can win championships, but you've got to win a lot of different ways. And to, to that point, we've seen this Oklahoma team win a lot of different ways. And the character building wins are there when they're wins. Uh, I'm sure the, the message would not have been as positive or nuanced. Uh, if UCF had found a way to knock them off and, and everything we had spent the bye week talking about post-Texas 
was off the table before it could even really, you know, get off the ground to make some metaphors. But fact is, this Oklahoma team is finding ways to win games. There's a lot of coaches, Eli, that believe that the best time to coach a team is right after a disappointing win because you don't have everyone totally deflated because you didn't lose, but you've got everyone's attention and the opponent got their attention. So if that is the case, if that really is true, then this is a weekend where Brent Venables for this season and his coaching staff can really put the most mark on this team, their biggest imprint on this team. So we will see how they respond uh, in Lawrence. And I do think it's going to be a tough one on Saturday. Yeah, well, as I said before, we thought UCF might be the easiest game on the schedule. Turned out to be the toughest non-Texas test OU's had so far. Now you got Kansas where maybe Jalen Daniels is back. I think those rumors will be flying all week. After that, you got Oklahoma State, a game that has gone from, you know, many people thought it might be a laugher. Now an OU uh, run defense that's given up some big days to opposing rushers has to face Ollie Gordon and go to, to Boone Pickens Stadium. That's not one you can just pencil in now. And point is, after this past weekend, there's not a game on the schedule that you should look at and say, that's a cakewalk, that's easy, because they, they had a chance, I think, against UCF to prove something in terms of we're just going to take care of business against these kind of inferior opponents. Maybe they'll do that from here on out, um, but they've not done anything yet beyond really what dispatching Iowa State earlier this year of showing that they are just going to, to roll through the teams they're supposed to roll through. This is going to be a challenge. Well, and, you know, I, we talked all last week about is the Texas hangover real? I, it's anecdotal evidence. It's one year. But this year, it seems as if there was a little bit of a hangover for both teams. Could you imagine being the guy who thought he debunked the, uh, the myth of the OU Texas <laughs> hangover? Felt pretty good about that rolling into the stadium Saturday and then watch that game. You know, well, I don't know. Brent Venables pretty much, you know, knocked that down entirely. The idea of, uh, of, a, of it having anything to do with the week off or anything post-Texas. You know, this is a team, at least outwardly, that treats their games, you know, each week as, a, as another season. Want to know every week, that whole thing. Um, but something was lingering. Something was, uh, was not right. And, and it really did feel off for a lot of that game and, until they, as they've done in other weeks this year, did the very bare minimum uh, to escape UCF. How was the atmosphere? Did it feel off for an 11 a.m. kickoff after the week off? Did it, did it feel a little deflated early? No, it was pretty good. UCF traveled well. I was in downtown Oklahoma City Friday night, and I saw a bunch of black and gold, and they showed out. Not surprising. Huge alumni base. Only time they're going to get to play Oklahoma in the Big 12, all that. But it was a good atmosphere. I said it. You know, the momentum turned when that goal line stand didn't happen. The, right. the noise on first, second, and third down was was huge and it felt like a moment and it felt like man if they had, if they did it twice in two games that goal line stand the whether it's real momentum or just the feeling in that crowd would have been over the roof uh, over the moon that flipped on the Jaron Canick taunting penalty um kind of reversed they, they got away with one at Texas I think it was Ethan Downs right standing over Quinn Ewers they got away with it there crucially didn't get away with it against UCF. And I think that turned everything. And the crowd kind of changed after that. The energy changed. Uh, the energy certainly was not great around the offense. Again, third quarter, you heard boos when another drive ended with just nothing happening. Um, and fortunately for them, fortunately for Jeff Lebby, they turned it around in the fourth. Well, they only called the one against UCF because the conference hates Oklahoma and Texas. And the officials, you know, 
are biased against them. I wanted to make that very clear. That is a contention that you will hear from Oklahoma fans. Certainly, I mean, I, I guess we can hit on it now. I was going to ask you about it later, but the Javon Baker blows the kiss. Um, a penalty I've, we've, we've all seen over the years. You know, it's, it's I think, by rule. Well, I guess I'll, we'll, we'll explain the play. We talked about it before. Woody Washington completely beat on kind of a, a trick zone read deal. He bites on the run, and Javon Baker's gone for an 86-yard score. About the 30-yard line, Javon Baker turns to the OU sideline and blows a kiss. Solid celebration, if you ask me. Uh, on his way to the end zone, flags fly, unsportsmanlike penalty, uh, conduct penalty assessed on the kickoff. By rule, if you go to the NCAA rule book, and we've seen this plenty, Todd, in my time at the University of Missouri, I think I saw it four times, it speaks to the ineptitude of the football program during my years there. But by rule, that was a, a penalty, a taunting penalty that would have brought the touchdown back. It's, it's a succeeding, uh, 15 yards succeeding from the spot of the foul. So in that case, about the 30-yard line where Javon Baker taunted OU's sideline. Brent Venables was livid about it. Um, afterward, just, I you know, think it helped that they'd won the game and that the touchdown didn't cost them, but basically said that the refs gave an explanation that they missed it and that they called the penalty after the touchdown. I'm sure that didn't satisfy Brent Venables. Did not help uh, any of the Flames and, and folks who, who feel like the Big 12 and, and Big 12 referees have it out for Oklahoma. Where do you land on this one? Um, by rule, absolutely should be called back as far as uh spirit of the rule and and just having fun in college football i don't know if that should be a penalty but certainly by rule that should have been chopped off and and i'm glad we're not sitting here at least talking about an oklahoma loss and, and whether that played a role in it well again by rule they missed it brent venables is right to be mad because they missed it but i do think it's a little wild to get that bent out of shape out of a play where you were beaten i mean you know like Yes, it should have been a penalty, but also it should have been a touchdown. You know what I mean? So it's it's a weird thing to complain about. I always feel like if that if that were to happen to, and I am not an OU football fan, but I'm a Green Bay Packers fan, and if that happened in a Packers game and the rule was called incorrectly, I would go, yeah, that's cool. The Packers got a break, but also the Packers blew the coverage on that play. You know, So I think it's a weird thing to complain about. I don't think referees are in the business of being biased against anybody, uh, it, especially not because they're leaving and going to another conference. These referees are going to make the same amount of money. Hell, they'll probably make more money now with more teams in the conference now and games on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday uh, than they would if Oklahoma and Texas stayed. So I don't think that plays into it. Referees make mistakes. And, you know, we all watch it on TV and we see this big broad view and it's very obvious that he blows a kiss to the sideline. The referee may be looking at his feet to see if he's staying in bounds. He may be, you know, looking to see if there's a block down the field that's a blindside block and kind of looking through the play and just misses it. So I, I wasn't that bent out of shape about it. Um, I think the the Canick one was pretty obvious. It was a penalty and it should have been called a penalty. They saw that one. They didn't see the other one. I think if they would have seen them both, they would have called them both. Yeah, I think, you know, kind of look at it like Occam's razor. Is, is the Big 12, does the Big 12 have an officiating scheme against OU and Texas in 2023? What would only be one of the biggest college sports scandals of our time, right? If it were real. Or do college football refs who are not 
notoriously flawless in making calls over the course of a season, missing things like that. I probably land on the ladder there. But was now again, was that point o- is, was, was that Occam or was that Hanlon? I think that might be Hanlon's razor, which is Hanlon's assume razor. ignorance, not malice. Well, now we're getting into our uh, our Monday morning academics. It's too. I haven't. I've, I haven't even finished my first cup of tea. So let's <laughs> let's come on, come on now. <laughs> You're a tea I drinker. That's, I am a that's... tea drinker. I you surprised. Well, you are an East Coast uh, elitist, so it's yeah. not that surprising. <laughs> you know, I transitioned probably in the last like eight months. I just gave up coffee. I'll still have the occasional, this is going to help the East Coast elite, but like if I'm out, I'll have like a cappuccino, but uh, I'm a tea man now. I experiment with my different leaves and all that. Exactly. We got the cup right here. Um, but point is, I-, I think Oklahoma would have had something to be upset about if they lost that game and that touchdown was the difference at the same time. To your point, it would be a question of, well, you got beat on that play, and why did you get beat? You know, if you're getting beat by UCF, we've got way bigger problems here than a blown kiss. Why was Oklahoma in that type of a game? Well, it's idiotic that the kid does it, right? He shouldn't have done it. And and even though it didn't get called, what it's taken away from was a brilliant play call and incredible execution by UCF. The thing about that play that's the most amazing, and I went back and watched it thinking, no way they pulled that off was that no lineman went downfield. You know, you've got the three yards, and they still they still were within that three-yard box when uh, John Rice Plumley made the pass. So good on them for making the play. It was perfectly executed. Kids shouldn't have done it, but, you know, like you said, it's not a huge talking point because Oklahoma does escape with the win. Now, talking about plays that made a difference, the, the taunting penalty on Jaron Kanick, if you want to assume Oklahoma was going to get one more stop on fourth down, keep him out of the end zone, Instead, UCF scores there seven points. Another six points were lost at the feet of, of Zach Schmidt. And, and then you're talking about, you know, if, if those two things go differently, it's a th- those are 13-point swings, and this game is not as tight. And the, the lingering concerns over OU's kicking game uh, that, that were there after Texas, that have been there lately, if you really want to go back to the end of last year and, and some of Zach Schmidt's troubles, um, fact is, Oklahoma doesn't have consistency in the kicking game right now. And just like the run game this week, it finally nearly caught up to them in a, in a close game, in a game where Oklahoma needed every point. Uh, and now it, I'm, I guarantee it, when, whenever we're in Lawrence and, and Zach Schmidt lines up for his next kick, there's going to be that collective feeling. It'll be that same collective feeling across Sooner Nation. I feel bad for the guy. I mean, I think Brent Venables just put it as a rough patch. Um, but point is, when kickers are struggling, the everything turns up on that, and and it's going to be something to keep an eye on up ahead because the Sooners are going to play close games, championship football, special teams is a big part of that. You need consistent field goal kicking, and right now it's at least a question for the Sooners. To borrow a line from my uh, old friend Andrew Gilman, that was not a game for Kickers Illustrated on Saturday. It was, however, a game for punters illustrated. And, Amen. you know, I, I think if we're handing out flowers, I think that's one, uh, one place that we've got to hand out a flower for Oklahoma on Saturday. Yeah. Well, punting, Luke Elzinga came in. He, it was a bit of the, uh, it turns out if he got two punters, he got no punter. But OU settled on, on Luke Elzinga, the transfer, and, and he, 
he did the job better. That, that was a better punting day than Oklahoma's had at any point this season. And while I do believe you can have a distant punter and a precision punter and probably be fine, maybe they are better off now that they've settled on one guy. Uh, we didn't see Josh Plaster Saturday. But Zach Schmidt missed from 38, missed from 43, missed wide left, missed wide right. He'd missed short against Texas. Um, now has missed four of his last eight kicks, field goal attempts. So that's a an issue, one way or the other. Um, that's a, something that, that this team has to figure out. Brent Venables afterward basically put all of his confidence behind Zach Schmidt, called it a rough patch, said he sees what he's done in practice, all of that, and that they are standing by their kicker, no consideration of moving on. I can, I can support that. I think Zach Schmidt has at times proven, um, he's, he's proven himself a capable college kicker, a guy that OU should be able to rely on. However, late last year, was was there was a bit of a dip he started perfect this year for four for four and since then that's where the struggles have come so it's again i say it it, it'll be something we'll be watching and everyone in across sooner nation the next time he lines up for a kick there'll be that knot in the stomach at least for a bit while they figure it out alternatives gavin marshall is is on the roster redshirt freshman former five-star kicking prospect out of the coles you know kicking camp universe um, but no indication from Brent Venables, at least on Saturday, that they've got any plans to do anything different but having uh, Zach Schmidt lining up to take kicks against Kansas. I think people have to be very careful with kickers because kicker is one of the most unique positions in all of sports. Uh, maybe the only thing kind of comparable is like a bullpen pitcher. Um, you know, Because these guys are not like a goalie in soccer is on the field the whole time. Same in hockey. They're on, the, they're on the ice the whole time. These guys come out and they're asked to do one thing and specialize in that one thing. Um, and it's, it's very much a mental game for kickers. These guys are all capable of kicking 60, 65-yard field goals. It's a matter of can, when the crowd's yelling at them, can they calm everything down, get that tunnel vision and do it. So when you replace a kicker, if that second kicker disappoints, you don't just go to the number one guy and go, hey, you're back in, and all of a sudden it goes good again. That mental stuff lingers all year long. So I think you have to have a little bit longer leash, a little bit you know, more of a wait time before you pull the hook on a kicker. This isn't like the NFL where you can just go pick one up off of waivers midseason. You've got what you've got on the roster until next year hits. So it's understandable that, you know, not knowing all about everything that they have behind Zach Schmidt, it's understandable that because you know if you make that change, it's a permanent change that they put it off a little bit. Well, here's another thing, too. If, if Oklahoma felt like they had the next Adam Vinatieri just sitting on the sidelines not kicking right now, he'd be in the game, um, Gavin Marshall. That's, I, I, unfortunately, for all, for all the in-depth knowledge I have of this team, I can't tell you what Gavin Marshall does in practice. The point is, um, if they had a dude who could hit from 55 yards and, and do it consistently, he'd be the kicker. But I, I think you have to lean on the experience and, and of, of Zach Schmidt and, and keep that long leash uh, and, and give him a shot. Because I, I think in, in a really real sense, there's nothing you can do. There's no free agent kicker to go sign. You've got who you have on your roster. So they've got to get through the next six, seven, eight games uh, at this point with one of these guys. And I, I think Zach Schmidt, again, has, has proven it over the, the length of time that he can be that guy. They've got to ride this wave. I do wonder if, if you know, next week, if you're, if you're looking at a fourth and three from the, 
from the 30? Are you thinking more about keeping the offense on the field? Uh, a lot easier to do that when you're picking up easy gains on the ground. Nothing was coming easy for the Sooners the other day. But point is, those six points could have really mattered. They would have made this a lot less tight. Uh, and the Sooners do have some figuring out to do with Zach Schmidt in the kicking game. I, I also just want to say real quickly, Eli, I think we, we're going to talk all week, and rightfully so, because we cover OU about how Oklahoma disappointed in many ways on Saturday. But I thought UCF played really well. They had a really good game plan. They came in and executed it. They were a team that was sick leading up to this game, uh, which, you know, historically, like, if you go back and look, some of the biggest losses in Oklahoma football history, uh, one of them, 1975 against Kansas. The year Oklahoma won the national championship, uh, they lost 23-3 to Kansas. Kansas was injured in that game and still beat the Sooners. A few years ago, all of Kansas State had COVID, and they came down and beat the Sooners with, you know, like running backs at safety. So historically, Oklahoma's had that thing happen quite a bit where teams have come in, had some issues, whether it's injury or sickness, and played the Sooners tough. And UCF deserves a lot of credit for how they played on Saturday. Indeed they do, and that's a team that, you know, now they've got four losses in the Big 12, but they'd gotten wiped by everyone they'd played in the conference to this point. I think that's why, even with John Reese Plumley coming back, there was a feeling that this should be a walkover for Oklahoma. It wasn't. They're not going to be fun for anyone to play the rest of the way. They have flaws. If you can run the ball, which Oklahoma couldn't Saturday, you can really control the tempo and, and make up some ground on, on UCF, but... Um, we saw that they've got certainly got some fight and they, they've got the big playability to, to hang with just about anybody in the conference. I think you and I agree, too, that they're going to be a bear in the new look Big 12, right? Yeah, I believe I really think all the it, we can. It's one of the stories of this season is how much the, the newcomers have struggled. I think that's a 2023 issue I and mean, maybe 2024. But uh, whether it's looking at it and saying, yes, it was always going to be a big step up for these non-Power Fives to step up here, or as we've hit on before on the jacket, it's just cycles. Cincinnati two years ago, Houston two years ago, would have been hanging atop the, the Big 12 uh, right now, and they just, they've kind of cycled through. Uh, Cincinnati is a coaching change. Houston, you know, you're at a, in a program like that, to this point, you're always going to have peaks and valleys. You're not going to sustain it. Uh, for a long time. So I think that's where we're at. And I think UCF, no different. There's no doubt that with the recruiting boost they're going to get moving up, it's, it's a huge school, place that's had got some history, all that. They're going to be fine. They're going to be players in this conference from here on out. Todd, we're going to finish here. The game of Liz in, Liz out. How's that sound? Let's do it. It was we've, We already hit on it, but we're still going to start with it. Taunting penalties on the whole. Like, Give me yep. Liz in or Liz out. Give me your... your heartfelt and passionate opinion on this one i mean we're soccer guys so we don't mind a little celebrating after a touchdown i don't even mind if it's a group celebration um i just think football is a very violent sport and it's it's hard sometimes to go hey be violent for 10 seconds and then stop being violent but i think that's something that is part of the discipline of the game right if if I think why people love football is it's a sport where everyone has to do their job and discipline is very important. And because of that, I think it's always going to be a part of the game. So, you know, I, it's so hard. Rules are so weird because they have to be black and white. There can't be gray areas. So I guess I'm okay with the taunting rules. Just know the rules and don't do it. They still let you celebrate plenty in college football. It's not as bad as it used to be. 
have a good time, have it with your guys, not at the other team's expense. Reasonable. So Liz in on a t- an end zone celebration, Liz out on a 30 yard line taunt. Correct. Is yes. What it sounds like reasonable. Yeah. I say everyone should just have more fun, but you're right. The discipline's a big part of it. Again, Jaron Kanek versus Javon Baker. One of them got caught for it. One of them got called for it. Uh, you can say have everyone should have fun, but point is, they can cost you. And and there you were. Uh, Michigan, they had a, a Navy former Navy SEAL on staff stealing signs somehow or implicated. Excuse me, he's now been suspended without pay in in this whole sign stealing deal. But uh, taking Michigan out of it, this and all the context. Every sport we watch, all of us, everyone who plays them or is at the highest levels will say sign stealing in some shape or form is a part of the game. Yep. Usually when, whether you're talking about the Astros or Michigan, you're talking about a a program that's taking it too far. You Liz in or Liz out on sign stealing. I, I do think it's a part of the game. If there's rules that say you can't do it in certain ways, then you have to abide by those rules. Um, I've, I used to do radio with Pat Jones, who coached at the Miami Dolphins, and he told me that, or maybe it was when he was with the Raiders, that they had a guy who his job was to get the broadcast game tape and crank up the volume and listen for their audible calls. You know, like it, that's stealing signs. It's doing it in a creative way around the uh, around the rules, and I'm okay with that. So I, it'll probably come out more exactly what Michigan did. So. I'm again, this is one where I'm in the middle. I'm Liz in on sign stealing. I think it's part of the game, but I'm Liz out on breaking the rules to do it. Todd, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. You, you dropped that name right there. Pat Jones. You got you to gotta pick that up off the floor. No problem. We used to steal signs all the time and whatnot. <laughs> I'd like to talk sign stealing with Pat Jones. Uh, all right. Some have suggested since USC dropped their second game, that Caleb Williams could or, or should just sit out the rest of the season, ride it out, get ready for the NFL draft. What does he have to, to gain from playing the rest of the way? You Liz in or Liz out on that sentiment? I mean, of course I'm Liz out on that sentiment. I, th- I think that's the antithesis of what we preach when we talk about team sports, is quitting on your team for your own personal gain. Team sports is all about giving your all for the team's gain, right? So I'm Liz out on the sentiment. However, I also do understand that this world is more and more about money, especially in sports. And uh, just from everything we've heard about Caleb Williams, if there were someone who would sit out the rest of the year, it would probably be Caleb Williams uh, under the advice of the people around him. So I'm Liz out on the sentiment, but I think, I mean, it wouldn't shock me if it did happen. I'd say I'd be still pretty stunned. I could see it in this modern world. I I think I'm pretty fascinated by Caleb Williams. I said it to a friend yesterday. I think he's going to be maybe the first Gen Z superstar, like one of the first Gen Z superstars Mm -hmm. who treats his career that way, whether, you know, for better or worse, I think he's going to be very deliberate about what he does and and all that. I I think I would draw the line in terms of what I expect him to do at at this. I I can't imagine he's going to step away, but guess we really don't know what is going on in, in that USC locker room, in part because Lincoln Riley didn't let any of his players speak after that loss the other night. I, I think I know where you'll it go here, but I, 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 I know it, it was a familiar, it was like watching a rerun for, for Oklahoma fans, I think. I know where you'll go with this, but I, I want to get your take more, you know, less on no one cares about reporters and whether we get to talk to players, but 
on what it says about USC under Lincoln Riley, you Liz in or Liz out on that response after a second straight loss. Uh, oh, of course from... I'm Liz out on it. Of course I'm Liz out on it. And it's the same thing. Like I, I get that this is the way we go now. This is how we treat media now. But the biggest issue for with this for me, for Lincoln Riley, is you've got a defense that everyone looks at as soft. You've got a team that in big moments, everyone thinks isn't mentally strong enough to do the right thing, mentally strong enough to make the right play, to make a tackle in space. They can't do it because they're soft. And then how do you respond after your team loses? You do this, which is the epitome of soft. So it plays into all the stereotypes that everyone thinks about his teams. And, you know, after after some point in time, Eli, they're not just stereotypes because they're unfounded. They're stereotypes because it's real. That's what's really happening with USC football right now is they are becoming soft. And I think people got blinded to it around here because it became the new normal. But from the outside looking in, it's pretty obvious that the same type of things that happened at Oklahoma are happening at USC. And one of those includes Lincoln Riley still being a jerk to the media and still using the media to, you know, let his players kind of do whatever they want to do, which hasn't worked. I mean, on the whole, football teams tend to become reflections of their coaches, right? We've seen yes. it with Oklahoma. Uh, I mean, it's OU fans will eat this up, making comparisons to Venables and, and Lincoln Riley. But fact is, you talk about the resilience and the energy and the relentlessness of this Oklahoma team. It sounds a whole lot like Brent Venables. It comes from the top. I don't know that, you know, however you want to view it, but yeah, soft is a word you could throw at USC and there's something soft about, you know, bailing on, on kind of stepping in front of the cameras after a game like that. But it also just suggests that they're worried about the wrong things that, and, and that's an issue when you, you're losing games like this and your defense is a mess and, and the offense is kind of start, stop, you're, you're blowing leads. If you're worried about the media, then you're not focused on the right stuff and you're in bigger trouble anyhow. So I think uh, you're exactly right. We're talking about reflections uh, of, of the program. Uh, you're, you're maybe seeing a, a familiar pattern with Lincoln Riley. Moving back to the Sooners, 10-point favorites on the road at Kansas after that two-point win with UCF. You Liz in or Liz out on that? Well, my my pick history on Oklahoma football this year has not been good. I think in their seven games, I'm two and five picking them against the spread. So Sooner fans are going to love to hear this, but I think it's going to be a tight one in Lawrence on Saturday. So I am, uh, I guess I'm Liz out on the Sooners covering the 10 points. I think it's going to be a single digit game. If I had to pick it right now, I say Oklahoma wins. Uh, I think if you're an Oklahoma fan, you hope it doesn't come down to a field goal at the end. Maybe it's a backdoor cover. For Kansas or something like that. But yeah, I would say I'm Liz out on the Sooners covering 10. Nick Anderson, eight touchdowns in five games. He's on some kind of torrid pace. Uh, he's, he's one away from Marvin Mims's freshman touchdown record. Liz in on Liz out on, on Nick Anderson pulling down another touchdown in week nine. I mean, I got to say Liz in, right? You got to play the odds on this one. He's uh, Nick Anderson touchdown maker. The guy's hit rate, I tweeted on Saturday, is higher than George Clooney's right now. I mean, he's <laughs> everything he touches turns to gold. So, yeah, I'm Liz in on Nick Anderson catching another touchdown. We wondered who was going to step up after Andrew Anthony's injury, and his name was one of the first ones, obviously, that got thrown out there, and he had another really good performance on Saturday for the Sooners. Interesting note 
on the first game without Andrew Anthony, top two target guys, both with, with nine were Drake Stoops and Nick Anderson. I think that's going to be an evolving thing for the Sooners, but uh, those were the guys they turned to most. Finishing here, Oklahoma, for the first time all season, lost the coin toss Saturday. That should have been the first signal that things were not going to be simple. Do they get off the schneid this week? Can they win the coin toss at Kansas? That's got. I assume that's what Brent Venables is going back. What he's yelling about. What he's looking at the tape on is figuring that out as as a way to to set the course right for the rest of that game. There are two things in sports that I just get on my nerves. One is when somebody cheers when their team wins the jump ball to start a basketball game. I don't know if people know how this works, but there are four quarters in basketball or two halves if it's college, and your team, if you didn't win the tip, gets the ball the next quarter or the next half, and it rotates, and everyone gets the same amount of possessions. So it always makes me laugh when a team wins the tip, the exact same win in the coin toss. It always makes me laugh when OU wins the coin toss and everyone cheers like they're going to get an extra couple points out of that deal or something. It cracks me up every time. So. Um, I don't play the only coin toss rule I had when I was a captain, which wasn't very often. It was my senior year in high school was tails never fails. I chose tails every time I let the chips fall where they may, you know, it wasn't tails every time, but I always called tails because I'm a weirdo like that. So that's the only coin toss rule I really have. Other than that, I just, I think it's funny that fans cheer for that. Same as a jump ball with your team winning it. It's kind of annoying, actually. It's not funny. Well, I talk myself into it. The Sooners are officially six and one on coin tosses this year. And State six and one up. against the spread. And the one hey. loss was the game where they didn't win the coin toss. So maybe the play is you wait for the coin toss, hit that live line right after the coin toss. I would guess there's about a 50 50 chance they get it right this week. <laughs> I, statistically, I think you're right on the number there. That's the kind of math you get here at the Letterman Jacket, and that is going to do it on this Call early us, week Mr. edition. Pulitzer. Call us. That's us. Come on. We, there's got to be a math award too, right? I've seen Goodwill Hunting. They were giving out awards for math there. I think, <laughs> I think we're in that. We'll be solving equations here pretty soon. But if you haven't subscribed yet and you made it this far, please do leave a review, good, bad. Otherwise, we'll take them. We'll take everything we can get at this point. You can find us, as always, on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, iTunes. Well, Apple and iTunes are the same. Everywhere you get your podcasts, you can find my coverage of the Sooners, Sellout Crowd, and Eli-Letterman.com. Todd, you're going to be out of town, but you got anything coming for us this week? Uh, Yeah. You know, OU's going to play a game at Kansas. So I thought just it randomly, it just so happened to be the week of Kansas, I'm going to rank the uh, top 10 greatest bald coaches of all time. So... That's hmm. coming this week. Um, Coincidental. It, it's really weird that it happened that way. But also, uh, I will be kind of diving into OU with their last trip to Lawrence for football probably in quite some time. And a, uh, a series history that's pretty interesting between OU and Kansas kind of all week on my YouTube channel. So go give me a follow as well uh, on YouTube. Well, that's what Todd's got going. I'll have plenty more going on OU. And we'll be back with another episode of Letterman Jacket later this week. Bye.